Hello, I'm Viv Groskop, journalist, author, stand-up comic, staunch friend and fierce foe, and this is We Are Women. We Are Women is a very new and exciting podcast brought to you by Mint Velvet. Our aim is to create a space to talk and laugh and occasionally groan about what it's like being a woman, the magic and the mistakes and all the muddled glory. We want to talk about life, love, work and of course wardrobes because we love clothes and we think they're a big part of who we are, who we were and who we want to become. So today there will be a bit of this. I do see clothes as quite a sort of political. They are a true expression of ourselves. A soupçon of this. I'd asked my mum if I could become a punk. She had said no and I'd said okay then. And a touch of this. Women needed each other in order to raise children. Men fought each other to get the best women. In this edition, we're going to be exploring friendship and appropriately enough, joining me are two friends. Alice Levine is a BBC Radio 1 host, a television presenter, co-creator of the runaway smash hit podcast, My Dad Wrote a Porno. More of that later. Hi, Alice. Hello. Alice met Laura Jackson, who's also a television presenter, quite by chance. They became great friends and from that friendship grew a hot ticket supper club, a lifestyle brand and now a cookbook around two hours. Welcome to We Are Women. Hi. Thanks for having us. Oh, it's so lovely to meet you. So tell me, how did you two become friends? When did you meet and how did you meet? Well, when we met was a different time to when we became friends. Is that right? (laughs) No. We were friends instantly. Oh, don't don't stop being friends Uh, now. No, it was it was kind of love at first sight. We met at a jumble sale. Yeah, you found me a you found me a cat blouse, I think. Yeah, and I think you found me some high-waisted flares, which I still have, and a denim skirt with a pleated belted Mm. waist. But then we ended up um, taking a lunch break together where we went for some chili con carne. And uh, the rest, they say, is history. But when you first met, did you imagine that it would lead to the two of you virtually going into business together? <laughs> well, absolutely not. You would never meet a friend and think, we're going to start a business together. And I think it's happened quite organically and quite naturally. And I think that's been the the best part of it. I think if you met somebody and said, you know what, let's start a business together. It's like meeting a man and saying, I'd like to have a baby and I'd like to get married. It's quite a scary proposition, <laughs> isn't it? So I think that it happened quite it's organically. It's not first date chat is it like no. let's build an empire yeah so yeah it definitely how many credit cards have you got <laughs> okay you'll do <laughs> well this theme has come about partly because our last guest on the podcast was Lucy Porter and she said that female friendship is one of the best things about being a woman would you agree with that yeah because I don't think men forge the same friendships that women do um, I think that women talk to each other. They're very open. They're very honest. They're very loyal. And I don't think men are. I think I probably spend more time talking to my girlfriends than I do my boyfriend, who I live with, um, which is worrying at times. Mm, Alice, what do you think? I think female friendships are really important and really defining, and 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 they help you decide who you are and how you frame the world and how you tackle the world. So yeah, I'd say. 
they're the, one of the most important things about being a woman, definitely. Yeah. Well, your friendships clearly survived setting up a business together. Uh, just explain, uh, for those of us who don't live in East London, mm. where these things are very fashionable, uh, what is a supper club? How do you define a supper club? How does that work? We struggled with that, didn't we? I we don't did... think we know now. No. I was just going to say, I think we're still looking for that answer, if you have it, Viv. It's a cross between a private dinner party and a restaurant, right? So I think... What we liked about the the term supper club is it's kind of got a bit of an old oldie worldy feel to it. I mean, like nobody calls it supper, do they? Apart from people who probably eat off of fine bone china and only have yeah. silverware, um, three barrel surnames. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Dame Maggie Smith and Downton Abbey would Precisely, have supper. Yeah. Totally yeah. have supper. Mm-hmm. So we kind of liked the um, like. I guess the irony of it of it sounding like very high end when probably what we do isn't particularly high end. And we liked this idea that we would be able to cook, we would be able to dress the space and decide what the menu was. And But we obviously aren't chefs, we're just home cooks. So somewhere between um, having friends over for a nice dinner and uh, a really, really informal local restaurant, but where the chefs have no formal mm. training. <laughs> or no idea. <laughs> yeah, and burn all of the desserts. So yeah, we just, we, we it was a challenge. We love the thought of getting people around one table from all different walks of life that have got interesting stories to tell but the common denominator is food so you can get anybody around a table and they just start talking to each other now I want to ask uh, both of you to do an experiment and this is inspired by the wonderful broadcaster Gemma Kearney who we'll hear from a bit later in the programme she's just written a book all about the importance of dialogue and getting stuff out in the open And one thing that she did in her book was to WhatsApp her friends to ask the best and worst things about her as a friend. So would you consent to taking the Kearney challenge right now? So, what? um, so, okay. Let's try try it on WhatsApp (laughs) and and see what happens and we will reveal all at the end. Okay, bear with. This is great. This is great radio. This is great radio. Okay, um... Um, okay, I've sent it. Okay. I'm nervous. <laughs> um, so whilst we're waiting to hear from Alice and Laura's friends, this is a good time to say that we also want to hear from you. Please come to the Mint Velvet Facebook page or tweet at Mint Velvet and tell us what you think of We Are Women. Whether you want to celebrate or sound off, we really want to hear it. We also want to hear your thoughts at uh, about one particular question that we're currently pondering. What advice would you give to another woman. My name is Polly Vernon. I'm a journalist and the author of Hot Feminist. Um, The advice I give to almost all women all the time and I try and give myself is beat yourself up a little bit less. And if you are going to beat yourself up and you probably are, you know, wonder if you'd say the stuff you're saying to yourself to your best friend. My name is Lucy. I work for a creative agency. I actually got some great advice um, from a man, uh, the global CEO of a company, who said to me, simply, care less. Men tend to celebrate more their successes and women tend to dwell more on their failures and that will make them suffer from lack of confidence in the future when really they should also just shrug it off, put it down to experience and move on. Essentially, they should care less. I'm Mariella Frostrup and the advice I'd give to another woman would be not to fear ridicule because people will always laugh at you but it's incredibly important to deep down somewhere 
have a kernel of self-belief that just means that what other people think is far less important than how you feel about yourself. And you have to, have to like yourself. Our thanks to those lovely ladies and we hope you're feeling inspired by their answers. Please do tweet us your life mantras. Now time for a feature we call My Life in Clothes. The idea is that the clothes we wear are intimately bound up in our identity, our developing sense of who we are and the evolving image we present to the world. Revealing all for We Are Women this time is Julia Hobsbawm, the world's very first professor of networking. She's an entrepreneur and also the author of a new book called Fully Connected, all about surviving and thriving in the age of overload. Right, so I've laid out some of my favourite things and some of the things that I suppose represent how I dress, which is I love clothes. I feel they are um, a great friend to me. I'm, I'm somebody that has had to acquire confidence as I've grown older and clothes make me feel confident. A huge moment in my life was realising that not only were clothes incredibly important to me, but that if I took them seriously, it was a way of taking myself seriously. And it happened in two stages. The first was when I was in my early 20s. I was unconfident in the way I dressed. And that was because at the time I would go to the high street shops and I would buy what everybody said was in fashion. And a bit of a light bulb went off when I suddenly thought, that's not the right way to do it. I need to dress myself according to what I actually feel good in. But then the second revelation around my clothing came 20 years later when I realised that, in fact, if I spent more time and more money on clothes, um, it actually improved my professional standing. Now, that I do feel complicated about because, of course, as a grown-up feminist, you think it's only your achievements. It's not. It's the hair, the makeup, the clothes, the shoes, the handbag, the lot. And I've got to say, my business fortunes changed when I began to dress differently. Um, the first piece of clothing I'd like to tell you about is very old. I've had it for 10 years. I bought it off a market stall for £10 and it is a red fake leather biker jacket. I love this jacket um, because it obviously makes me feel cool and hip, which is something I can't possibly be statistically as the mother of three children, one of whom asked me, in your day, mum, were there cars or just horses? So I'm obviously completely unhip. Uh, I accessorise it with one of my favourite scarves. I'm a big scarf person. If I'm feeling at all insecure or anxious, I, I love the protection of a scarf folded around my neck. Um, this is probably my favourite scarf in the whole world. It's a very thin, vintage, black, white and red stripe scarf that my... Uh, great aunt Gretel had. She was a uh, refugee from the Holocaust and she set up a factory and a fashion label here in Britain called Lindsay Design in the 50s. And she was incredibly stylish. And she gave me this. My earliest memory of me and clothes is a feeling very out of place on my first day of a new school and being jammed in an awful, itchy dress. 
And I absolutely remember that moment vividly thinking, when I have something to do with it, I will not be wearing a dress like this. Um, the rest of my clothing history from childhood is a bit of a blur uh, until I was a teenager when I was in a group of girls who used to walk around in drainpipe jeans, donkey jackets and stiletto heels and we were called the stiletto gang. Uh, in my case, uh, because I was such a wimp, I'd asked my mum if I could become a punk. She had said no and I'd said OK then and gone off to the stiletto gang. You would have thought that would be the end of my love affair with any of those kind of clothes but of course heaven for a woman like me is Vivian Westwood even though she was the architect of so much of punk and my Probably, certainly, most expensive piece of clothing is a, is a two-piece skirt suit by Vivian Westwood. I have to say, I feel like I'm wearing the most wonderful, soft suit of armour when I go out in front of audiences and I'm being filmed and all that stuff, which makes me very nervous. Um, that, with a simple white shirt underneath it and a nice necklace, I'm good to go with that. And some heels, obviously. So I have a, a counter-instinctive attitude to networks and networking, which is it's not about working the room, it's not about selling yourself, it's not about flinging your business card around. It is, in fact, about being yourself. And so even though I think that clothes can be a wonderful way of coating yourself with confidence, the truth is that to network well, whether you're at a dinner party, a bus stop or a business function, you actually have to be vulnerable because that's what connects people is intimacy. When I wear clothes that make me feel confident and safe, it's because I feel I need to act a bit in the world. And that's just the way I recognise I have to be sometimes to get through the day. But I would not recommend people try and cover themselves in anything other than what makes them feel more themselves. The book I've written is about modern connectedness and its discontents. And my starting position is that, in fact, most of us feel overloaded, overwhelmed and a bit bloated and unhealthy in the way we connect online, in the sources of information we have to navigate around. Um, we all really have drunk the Kool-Aid around mental and physical health and well-being. The fitness market, the gym market, the vitamin market, the trainer's market. Uh, it's surprising, but the fact is it's worth twice the arms trade. But our social health, as I call it, the way we connect, that's very out of balance, out of sync. Nobody has any strategies and tactics. Nobody even has a place like we have the gym. And I suppose clothes fit into this story quite simply because clothes happen in the real world. And I would like to reconnect us to being in our physical, mental and emotional selves, even when we're pinging off a gazillion emails. I think partly that's a reason why I take a lot of care over how I personally dress myself. Um, I think it's partly vanity. I think it's partly insecurity. But I think it's partly that clothes are a statement of being a human being. Our thanks to Julia Hobsbawm. Alice, did you uh, have an equivalent of the stiletto gang? I love the idea of the stiletto gang, like oh, when gosh. you're in your sort of mid-teens and you want to wear the right thing. There were lots of sort of status symbols in clothing. 
particularly in secondary school, um, a very, very tiny backpack, whereas I had one, I think, from, like, the Back Protection League or something that my mum had bought for me. That was very oh, my nice. God, I remember that. I remember. It's like, what is the point of this backpack? You just couldn't get anything in it. I mean, people didn't put anything in them. They had a backpack and then they had another bag. Yeah. Preferably a Jane Norman car- yeah. carrier bag. Yeah. No, a Morgan. We had Morgan. Morgan. Yeah. Morgan was big in the game, wasn't mm. it? I re- remember wanting a child called Morgan after the shop. <laughs> and coming home and telling mum, I'm having a baby and she's called Morgan. And the O is written with a heart, okay? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Either that or a JD Sports uh, drawstring, drawstring plastic bag. They, mm. were, they, were, they were the equivalent, perhaps, of the stiletto gang, yeah. Can you describe to me, each of you, what the other is like as a friend? Who's going first? I'll let you go first. Okay. Um, well, we always say that we're chalk and cheese because we're really, we're really different and I think that's what drew us to each other and what maybe makes our bond really strong. So Laura is... She's like a Tasmanian devil. She's a whirlwind. So sometimes I feel incredibly downbeat next to Laura because she's got so much energy and she's always really, really excited about whatever the task at hand is. So she's, I guess, the yes man to my no man sometimes. So we kind of balance each other out in that way. I love that. Yes man to my no man. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, a woman, I should say, shouldn't I'm I? Lot of, I'm a lot of people's no man, yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah. I think it's good, though, when you find your yes man, because then you you actually feel like you're, you're, you are balancing rather than just being negative all the time. You're like, oh, right, I'm just kind of reining it in rather than just, you know, shutting everything down. Um, Laura is one of, I would say, one of the most thoughtful people that I've ever met, um, you're struggling with something and so you'll suddenly get an email from Laura that's got 150 links to websites of those things that you were looking for. Um, so very like, it's very selfless and very thoughtful. Laura, you're going to have to come home with me. Oh, no. I'm, I'm great. Like She's some gem. sort of human Google <laughs> crossed with the ideal wife. I'm also a saddo and I spend a lot of time on eBay and Pinterest and Etsy and all of the interior online blogs. Maybe it isn't selfless. Maybe, Maybe it's, it's not really selfless. <laughs> I'm just finding something for me well, and then I'll just give you the... How does Alice match up to all this then? Is she really a no man? Doesn't no, she's like not. Much of a friend to me. Yeah, she's crap. No, she's not a no man at all. I think she's got a really level head. Like, I get really excited. Like, if someone says to me that they've, they want me to find a pink tablecloth, I like, I'll nearly wet myself on the challenge of finding a pink tablecloth. Whereas, well, Alice is just, like, she's so super smart, which is the opposite to what I am. Like, Alice was head girl at school. Alice takes her time over... Over everything. over everything, and she's really and she's really thoughtful like that. Whereas I'll just rush. Like Alice, even though she is on a phone all of the time, <laughs> which is the most annoying thing, she spends a long time like writing her emails. They're very well worded. Whereas I'll get a text from Alice going, "Can you not put a hundred um, exclamation marks on that email?" And she always listens to me. I'm the sort of person who is always a drama. There's always like something's collapsed in the house or like the dog's nearly dead. And I know that I can always call Alice and she'll always give me really good advice that's really level-headed and she's very kind. You brought it back there. I thought my I thought my defining feature was going to be I was good at writing emails. <laughs> I was like, you can do better than that. No, but it's good because I'm like, I think I get really, if someone says, do you want to do a job? I'll go, oh my God, we have to get this glassware. We've got to get this apron. Oh my God, we're going to look so good in this scrunchie. So if it wasn't for her, I mean, God knows. She'd definitely be bankrupt. Yeah, I'd be bankrupt. And Alice is, you know, very, very organised like that. 
Well, as this episode is all about friendship, I have decided to do the thing that friends do, uh, which is to meet my next guest for coffee. So I am waiting for my latte, which I have just ordered, and I can exclusively reveal that the multi-award-winning broadcaster, writer, producer, and all-round polymath that is Gemma Kearney also likes coffee. Yes. I'm very pleased. Uh, Gemma's voice is splashed across BBC radios 1, 2, 3, 4 and 6. She's currently the Agony Aunt presenter of Radio 1's The Surgery, where she offers help and hope to young listeners. She owns her own production company. She's artist in residence at the South Bank. She's a DJ and she's just brought, uh, brought out a brilliant book called Open, a toolkit for how magic and messed up life can be. <laughs> Hi, Gemma. So nice to meet you. I, I, can, I feel like I can pretend that we're friends. Yeah, I'm even, done with that. Even though we've only just met. I'm not that hard to um, make friends with, to be honest. Brilliant. <laughs> well, I feel like I already know you really well from your broadcasting, but also through having read the book because it's very intimate and personal. It's a sort of guide to life. Uh, there's a bit in it where you recommend this quite daunting, I think, WhatsApp experiment uh, <laughs> where you say, ask your mates on WhatsApp what it's like to be your friend. I love that. Um, was there a kind of frankness there, you think, that could end in tears? I did it just because I was soul-searching a lot via writing. I didn't want it to all be about me because that would be boring and tiresome. But I did do that experiment. And then some people just used it as an opportunity to tell me things that they probably find a little bit annoying about me. And because they love me, they wouldn't have the opportunity to tell me very often. So that's kind of good. And it's only like little light things. It's mostly like getting back to people and being reliable and... Uh, yeah, nothing like majorly awful. Now, I know we have only just met, although we have deeply bonded already, <laughs> but I want to ask you, how do you walk away from a bad friendship? I'm not suggesting I want to, Gemma. <laughs> you but... want to walk away from me already? That's it, she's <laughs> off. Um, it is really hard. And I thought a lot about this when I was writing the book, because, you know, my book is written, it's written for all ages, it really is. But I was thinking about the first times that you've dealt with certain things and you kind of love your friend, like you are in love with your friends when you are younger in a way that is like very unique to being young. So I wanted to offer like really gentle advice but to kind of show that it is really important to be able to notice the toxic signs of people. Coffee. Speaking of toxic signs, <laughs> I've got decaf so I don't feel bad. Uh, yeah, please, thank you. So I think a way of removing yourself from that toxic friendship rather than just seeing them one-on-one -on -one, how about you only see them in kind of a, a broader social situation so and you could do that via loads of different things if it's just organizing group stuff all of the time they ask you to hang out you don't owe anything really to anyone particularly if they haven't been very kind to you what's the best advice you've ever received oh some of the best advice is from one of the worst boyfriends that i've had but it was good advice, so I'll give him that. And he just said to me once, keep your head up, Gem. And I really needed it, because I think I always thought, oh, there's something like about me that just isn't as good as everybody else. And him giving me that moment to say, well, you absolutely are, so just always keep your head up. It really helps, particularly being a woman, particularly being a mixed-race woman, particularly like trying to achieve lots. Like, You have to keep your head up and think, yeah, I'm allowed to be here, I think, I think. <laughs> and yeah, it helps, it helps. 
We've named your brilliance as an agony aunt and a writer, but you are also something of a style icon, if I may use the words. Um, is that a conscious thing? Are you really interested in fashion? You love, you know, changing the way you look. I did work in fashion for like two years. I was actually a rubbish stylist. I did manage to get quite a good portfolio because of the people that I used to sort of hang out with ended up being quite famous. So I did like a shoot once in, in Adele's house, like before she was signed. Can you remember what you put Adele in? Like, we didn't have that much stuff. <laughs> I had like loads of amazing jewellery, like including like a crinkle cut crisp that Tatty Divine had made. And uh, you know, like, there's that kind of old, like hip hop street style where you can like wear an Afrocomb in your hair. We like had this like brush, like a mini brush that had Diva painted onto it that we had like in her hair and did these really beautiful kind of beauty shots. And we put her in front of one of her favourite posters at the time, which was a, that picture of Al Pacino in Scarface. So we put her in front, like with her crisp earring, and like we styled it so that it looked like she was in the bath with Pacino. <laughs> They exist somewhere. I've been looking for them. I can't find them, but I'd love to see them. What difference do you think the right outfit makes? It makes for the the essence of a good time, I think. The essence of strength and joy. I do see clothes as quite a sort of political thing in the sense that they are a true expression of ourselves. And when I went on tour with the book... I turned up in a double-decker yellow bus, an open-top bus around the country in schools um, with hula hoops, with fun music. We had glitter, and I would always wear, like, some of my most kind of bright stuff. And it came up a lot. You know, people were asking me, like, in quite a deep way, like, 14-year-old boys especially, saying, like, why do you wear so many colours? Like, why is the book yellow? Like, why is the bus yellow? And I thought it was a really good question, and really the answer, without being like really deep and meaningful, was like, because it's quite funny, <laughs> and it's bright, and therefore hopefully radiating just something positive that makes you smile today. And then they just sort of got it, and I think that that's my whole approach to the way that I dress, but also like my kind of belief and understanding in, in kind of clothes and garments, and it means I don't take things that seriously. Like, sequins are the holy grail above a lot of deeper meaningfuls. <laughs> <laughs> You've been out on tour with the book Meeting Loads of Teenagers. I know lots of our listeners will be thinking about their own, perhaps teenagers or maybe a bit younger, a bit older. Mm. How do we help that generation to navigate the world? How do we give them more self-confidence? It's really interesting because we keep talking about sort of age demographic, right? And I think it's really good to, to remember that we're all people and that we're all dealing with quite similar stuff, actually. And I think it's really important to have really good conversations. That's why I called my book Open. If you're worried about a teenager in your life, sitting them down having a heart to heart but not from a patronising perspective it's literally asking them what they go through what, what what's going on and admitting yourself that you also find things quite difficult and that you don't have all the answers um, for example when I was writing I went into a school and self-harm came up as an issue amongst 13 year olds and the teacher was so shocked because they'd never ever ever shown any signs of this to their, to the, their elders so I really, really, really think we need to 
like shake off our own fear when it comes to certain issues. We definitely need to open up a dialogue, particularly with young people, because they are feeling really alone and they're feeling really disconnected. So we have to be really monitoring what's going on by discussion, via chat. Gemma Kenny, you're very wise. I think you, we're not going to be able to be friends because you have to come move, move into my house and be my mother. I need your wisdom in my life. You're doing all right, though, Viv. You're doing OK. What did you think about her advice about walking away from a bad friendship? I thought that was really interesting. It's something I always wonder about is how do you let go of friends I know people talk about toxic friends now don't they what did you think about that Alice I think that's a really tricky thing to do I think often when you're in a bad friendship you don't you can't necessarily see the wood for the trees can you you don't necessarily see it for being as damaging or as difficult as it is I think it gets easier as you get older because you know more of who you are and you know how to handle it because you just know yourself better don't you Mm. We, now, we um, should say we don't have any friends. So just we, each we, other. Yeah, we're, we're, we're not qualified. Yeah. Now, Alice, I want to ask you about the podcast. Uh, Alice is co-creator of the incredibly popular podcast, My Dad Wrote, Wrote a Porno. I'm sure everyone listening has heard it. For the tiny percentage who haven't, it's Alice and her friends, Jamie Morton and James Cooper. They get together to read and discuss chapters from Belinda Blinked. <laughs> The erotic novel series written by Jamie's father, a.k.a. Rocky Flintstone. Rocky Flintstone. It's it's very funny. Now, there's this old line that uh, straight men and women can't really be friends because sex gets in the way. Sure. And in that podcast, it literally does get in the way. It does. uh, Of you and your friends. (laughs) It's the only thing that keeps us together, I think. (laughs) Do, Do you believe in that old adage? I suppose I know where that comes from in that... When you're, particularly when you're growing up, having, as a straight girl, having straight guy friends, it can be a confusing time. I think as adults, it's less confusing, right? I think you can separate platonic feelings from romantic ones. I mean, for us, sex has, yet, like you say, very, very much brought us together and bonded us because we talk about it. Um, every re- day, every day <laughs> on the regular, mainly just Jamie's dad's sexual fantasies. That's very specific. That won't work for everyone. Um, <laughs> I think it only it only gets um, it only gets weird when we when we start talking about our own experiences. Actually, the safe place is Rocky Flintstone's uh, <laughs> sexual thoughts. <laughs> we all need a Rocky Flintstone in our lives. And now, staying on the theme of, of friendship, we're joined down the line by the clinical psychologist Linda Blair, who runs a private psychotherapy practice. She also finds time to write a clutch of books and a regular column for the Daily Telegraph. Welcome, Linda Blair. Hi. Hi, Linda. So we're talking today, Linda, about female friendship. And we've all been saying that there's perhaps something very special about female friendship as opposed to male friendship. Is any of that borne out by the science? Absolutely. And the way you find out is you look at evolution. Women needed each other in order to raise children because children were raised by groups of women. Men fought each other to get the best women <laughs> in the best territory. Uh, do you, would you have any, any advice for women who struggle to make friends with other women? For anybody who's wanting to make friends with uh, anyone else, you need to put yourself in their place. Try to see what they're seeing. That's called decentering in psychology, and that gives us greater empathy. We're able to um, understand their feelings and therefore fe- feel better about them, but also 
to respond appropriately to them. How important is friendship within a romantic relationship? At the beginning, it's not very important because what draws people together generally at the beginning, believe it or not, is pheromones. (laughs) How the other person smells. (laughs) We're drawn to the people whose immune system, which we can sense through scent, is as polar opposite to ours as possible so that we would produce the healthiest children possible. So at the beginning, I'm afraid it's all physical. But if you want a relationship to last, then, you know, everybody knows that in the best of physical relationships, it it wanes. <laughs> so you need something else. My husband would probably say my scent has worn off a long time ago. Um, I'm, That's normal. So many, many of us now are forming relationships on social media. Do, do you think that those relationships can damage real world friendships? I don't think social media itself is a damaging thing. It's a very good form of passing information. It is not a form of helping you to feel safe and secure and part of a group. Again, we have to look back in in time. Um, Our brains, we think we're guided by rationality, by that great big cortex in the front. That's rubbish. The the boss is a little walnut-sized bit in the brain called the amygdala. And what does it need? It needs to know that there are other humans around. That goes back to the times when we had to fight enemies um, and we couldn't do it by ourselves because humans are, if you look at other animals, we're, we're pretty pathetic. <laughs> no fangs, uh, no claws. You know, we don't have ways of defending ourselves except as a group. So we need to know that other people are around. Well, the poor old amygdala, has not evolved as fast as technology has. And it does not recognize plastic boxes or screens. What it does recognize is, again, the scent of another person or the loving touch of another person. So we don't feel we're in touch. And that's why you can watch people looking like they're addicted to emails. You know, they're not doing anything, and then an email pings in, and, oh, it's somebody I know and like, and so you answer straight away, and then you start watching, wanting the answer, wanting them to reply back. That's because every time they do reply back, you're not getting what you wanted, which was recognition that they're with you. Well, thank you so much, Linda Blau. I'm going to go and work on my scent and my loving touch. Thank you very much, Linda. You're welcome. Now, it's nearly time to go, um, but before we return to our lives, uh, we must reveal the results of our WhatsApp experiment. What, what do you think people will have said about you? Bring in the phones. I love this. <laughs> this like, I don't know. I said it's my mum, so I'm hoping it's good. No, I've been brought in on a Thank golden you. tray. Um, I, I can predict one thing that will have been said, which is something that I think is a, a trait that really annoys Laura about me, and that's my punctuality. So what, that, that you are very punctual and that annoys people or you're not sure, very punctual? Sure, um, sure. <laughs> I'm not known for being early, put okay. it that way. Yeah, so Alice is always late. I forgot to say that. <laughs> um, My friend has just said, loyalty, hilarious, generous, worst, too busy. Um, so a friend says, you always ask about me and how I'm doing. You're a great travel companion because you're chilled but also decisive. <laughs> I'm not sure that's true. Um, I value your opinion, some bad things. You're very busy and sometimes late and you fall asleep too soon. (laughs) 
I do need upwards of 20 hours of sleep a day. Um, a lot of you're late all the time coming in. Oh, God, in. you did... So how many people did you send it to? Um... So many friends, Law. What can I say? Oh, God, so I was scared about the WhatsApp group. This this one is a common one too. Bad at parties. I am. Bad at parties? What does that mean? I'm, I just don't like parties, so I kind of try to get I get in and get out. A bit like the supermarket. Just try and like whip around, see everybody and get straight back out again. I, I can do it in a cool 33 minutes, I'd say now. So you arrive late, stay for a few minutes. Yeah then go home and go to sleep for 20 hours. You've just described a perfect day. I mean, I'd rather not have to go to the party for the 33 minutes, but yeah, if I have to, that's ideal. Now, that is unfortunately all we have time for, but stay in touch. And if you are brave enough to try Gemma Kearney's WhatsApp experiment, as we have here in the studio, tweet at Mint Velvet or come and find us on the Mint Velvet Facebook page and tell us what you discovered. We Are Women will be back in a few short weeks. Make sure you subscribe via iTunes or wherever you like to get your podcasts so that the next edition will automatically arrive hot off the press. And in the meantime, you can find lots more lovely We Are Women related articles and videos on the Mint Velvet website. My heartfelt thanks to guests who have become, I hope, friends (laughs) over the course of making this. Julia Hobsbawm, Gemma Kearney, Linda Blair and of course, Alice Levine and Laura Jackson. Thank you for having us. Thank you. I'm just on my phone, but yeah, um, thanks, yeah. (laughs) We Are Women is a Whistledown production for Mint Velvet. The producer is Kate Taylor. I'm Viv Groskop. Thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye. 